Hello, this is Tim Bailey and uh, Andrew Henry, my co-host, is not with us today. We're down in Evansville. Ben has given us the privilege of joining us for a podcast featuring his father-in-law. Father-in-law is John Enser. Let's begin by having you introduce John as you would prefer to do. What are some things that you think you would like to say about John? John is the president of a mission organization called Passion Life that is a pro-life mission, mainly to third world countries. They do a lot of work in China and Cuba, and they, they use the issue of abortion to spread the gospel and save babies. And they train pastors and church leaders in particular. But he's been in this world for years. Mm-hmm. He has a heart for the unborn and their parents. And he's worked in inner city Boston and in Miami and in a number of cities in the U.S. before this mission. I love John. When I was getting getting my hopes up about marrying his daughter, I didn't know much about what he did. Megan filled me in on some of it. Mm. My respect for the work he's done has only grown over the four years that Megan and I have been married. And uh, I know that he and his team work hard and that they they want to save babies and they want they want the people in those countries who are killing them to turn to Jesus and find forgiveness um it's been an encouragement to me uh, that i think is the main thing i want to say on this podcast about john mm. i think we would both say that from the time that we got to know megan mm-hmm. we began to love her mother and father that is true and it's because it's rare to have a graduate of Wheaton College who has meekness and humility and is very bright intellectually. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of is my description of my introduction to your daughter, that she had a tender conscience and she was humble. And my daughter-in-law, Heidi, is also humble Mm. very bright, very gifted musically and tender conscience and a Wheaton graduate. Yeah, she is uh, very strong intellectually and well-read and yet uh, carries a very quiet demeanor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a beautiful combination. Well, we're happy to hear your voice. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Good to be with you guys. So let me back up and give a little background about Megan, because I think it's important as an introduction of Passion Life, actually. Mm-hmm. Because you mention it on your website, that you went to have a vacation. Correct. And it sort of blew up into a ministry. Yes. So I first got to know Megan. How many years ago would it be now? Oh, my. I think, let's see, four and a half, four, four and a half What I got was thing from somebody I'd never heard of, came by email, and it was from a young woman who was in Boston at the time. She had recently returned from China, and it was a very long, carefully written email. It was like a flash of light in my life. Here came this email, and it was an email from a young woman who started out by saying that she had begun to read some of my online articles a number of years earlier and that she thought I was nasty and that I was needlessly uh, confrontational. Mm. She didn't make any apology for it, yet I knew she'd written me. And so I knew that probably her opinion had somewhat changed or she wouldn't have written a letter that started tenderly. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I kept reading, and she said, she described her life. She said she had gone from Wheaton to being a missionary in China. Uh, I'm somewhat familiar with the sort of hidden nature of that work. While she was over there, she, and I don't remember how she exactly put it, but she said, I decided that I wanted to get married and have children. Well, Mm. when she wrote that, I thought, and she went to Wheaton. But here Megan was saying that she wanted to be married and to have children. 
Well, for a weedy who's a woman to say that. Mm-hmm. And I was flabbergasted that she wrote that. And it was like, now I know you understand, but she didn't say those words. She didn't say, I know you understand. Yeah. She just said, I've decided I wanted to, to get married. As I was reading, I had a young son, friend, brother, I don't know what to call you, Ben, but <laughs> a young man I loved. And I wanted him to get married, but he had a problem. And his problem was he was short. How tall are you? Oh, five eight. Okay. That's not that short. No. Seven I thought of you as short. Sure. That's because you're tall. Well, no, I think it's because I looked at him with women, and he was not taller than they were, clearly. <laughs> and so immediately I was thinking, how tall is Megan? I mean, as I was reading the letter, I was thinking, how tall is Megan? <laughs> and so what I did as soon as I got done reading the letter is I went online and I began to Google her. And I looked for any pictures that I could see. And I remember finding a picture of her standing with two fellow Wheaties. Mm. No, I think actually those were her cousins, I'm guessing. Seriously. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Although I don't okay. know if they were two guys. <laughs> and it looked to me like they were taller than she was. I wrote her back immediately, and I said, I will have more response in time. But I'm wondering, would it be okay if I introduced you to a man that, I, that I'm wondering whether you might not find uh, somebody that is interesting to you? Or Life something. changing moment. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. How did I put it? Oh, that's right. Let's see. Would you mind if I put you in touch with a man your age is in our congregation? That's all I said. Oh, no, you said more. I don't want to read it all, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this is the point of this story, what I'm about to say. No matter how radical it was for her to say, I decided I wanted to be married and to have children. When she responded to my request to introduce her over email to Ben, the response to that is something I've never forgotten. And if you have it there, would you please read it? Sure. I don't mind if you share my email with Ben. I've actually heard him on Sound of Sanity before this podcast. I'd be very happy for you to put us in touch with each other. Thank you for thinking of it. There really isn't anything that feels like a greater kindness to me at this point in my life. And I'm telling you, my heart melted. Mm. Because for a woman who's graduated from Wheaton, been a missionary for many years in China, and is doing very well, thank you, in her profession in Boston. To say I can't think of anything that would be kinder is a special kind of Christian meekness and humility and femininity. Yeah. Let me weigh in on Megan a little bit also from my perspective. First of all, you know, she did grow up in that time where saying something like that really is radical, I mean, totally radical for her age period. I remember a time when she went with me to speak at a church and somebody asked her, what do you want to do with your life? And she was probably around 12 or 13 at the time. And that's certainly old enough to know the, the, the temperature of the times and mm -hmm. the setting, and feminism and all that. And she said... Yeah, I would like to get married and have children and raise a family. That's what she said when she was a young teenager, mm -hmm. which ironically made her long wait all that much more painful because out of our for you and your wife of our children, mm -hmm. you know, my boys didn't really worry about such things. Uh, and they end up getting married, but for Megan, I knew that it was her heart's desire. She had kind of understood that she wanted to share her life with someone and see her mission field mm -hmm. as her family, primarily. Now, she wasn't going to wait around and lament and grieve and become bitter. She was going to get on with her life. Uh, and that's why she ended up trying to find important things to do and going off to China and so on and so forth. But her, her self-awareness of what she wanted in a, out of life was there from a, from a very young age and only became more uh, radical because of the times in which she was living in and the currents that she was flowing in in terms of women not wanting to express those kinds of desires. 
and needing to find their importance by how they compete with men in the culture and mm-hmm. so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. But she's always wanted that. And then, of course, uh, we wrestled with many years because she would hit the 30s and she was still waiting, and it was painful. Every birthday was painful. And we still see many young women in this vulnerable situation today where they're really waiting for young, mature men to take the move, to make the Mm -hmm. initiative. And so many of them are afraid to do so these days. And it leaves a lot of women uh, waiting and vulnerable uh, to making poor decisions. So that becomes the test of faith. Can you wait patiently? Uh, or will you compromise? Will you settle? And Megan had enough faith to say, no, I know I know what the Lord's plan is for me, and the timing will be his. And, uh, and then that moment really became a life-changing moment when she wrote to you and you wrote back and introduced her to, to Ben. And um, it's been a joy to watch. So, John, uh, hearing you say that, I don't want to flatter you. In fact, later in this podcast, I'm hoping we can have a little bit of an argument because we've had it privately on the phone over the issue of pro-life leaders releasing oh, a yes. statement that they yes. wouldn't, that yes. nobody believes in prosecuting women. That's right. Yeah, because yeah. I think it would be helpful. Two things. Number one, to have two men the same similar age actually disagree with each other Yes. without crying and asking somebody to give us a handkerchief. Yes. I brought a handkerchief. Okay. But the second reason is I think that exchange is a very interesting exchange, especially in light of the the bloodbath we had at at the polls recently. Yes. So anyhow, we'll come back to that. The only way that we're ever going to see a change of abortion law in the United States is when the church begins to have pastors and the older women of the church teach the glory of femininity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Lord's been very gracious to her, and she has found that uh, the desire to be who she is as a woman and as a mother, as a wife, and she's reads well. I mean, she thinks clearly. I use her as an advisor in our in our work all the time. I run things by her all the time because. Uh, there's no limit to her intellectual uh, willingness to engage things and research things and read about things. So, uh, But her commitment to being a wife and a mother is a beautiful thing, and it's fulfilling to her. I mean, I can see it in her life all the time. It's just it's a remarkable thing, and I, I, I think you're right. We need to recognize and help women see that this is their first and highest calling and everything else is a, is a second best. Mm. Even as a missionary, uh, Megan did that while she was waiting for the deeper desires of her heart now we'll to get, about. We'll get to your vacation over in China, but first, yeah. would you open up that a little? And Ben, jump in anytime you want. Sure. But would you open that up even as a missionary? You well, I think that uh, uh, you know, if you are single and you want to be married, what do you do during that waiting period? Mm-hmm. That's the wrestling match. And for many young women today, it seems to me that the temptation is uh, to go ahead and compromise the biblical standards of waiting for a, a godly man to come along and make the initiative, because the waiting is frustrating. And the men are of our time are largely immature. For uh, women like Megan and others, they have to find out what they want to do with their life as a single woman, even though it's not their heart's desire. And so for Megan, she came to me one time and said, I really feel called to missions, but I don't feel a particular calling to a specific area. Now, I know enough about testimonies to know that some people get a very, very mm-hmm. specific mm-hmm. leading from a very young age. I'm going to go to Indonesia or Afghanistan or wherever. And uh, I told Megan, uh, it sounds to me like you have a heart for missions and that in your case, you should just kind of wait till the first opportunity opens up and go with it. And then like the rudder, once it starts, uh, the ship starts moving, the rudder can begin to steer you, right? So that door for her opened up with some classmates at Wheaton College and going to China. And so that's where she went out to go to China for one year, then it extended to two, which is when she said, hey, 
mom and dad, how come you haven't come visit me in China? I've been here almost two years. You need to come and see me, which is what brought us to China for that vacation Mm -hmm. to see her. But the point is that Megan, like many others, need to find kingdom things to do while they wait for the deeper uh, desires of the heart to come into fulfillment. And that's what she did. And, uh, at a certain point in time, she recognized that probably being in China was not a healthy place for her to be long-term without a husband. The Lord can find you anywhere. Mm-hmm. And we certainly found many missionaries in China that were in very isolated parts of China and still found uh, a godly mate. Mm-hmm. But I think that in Megan's situation, she recognized that uh, after eight years, uh, being a single woman in China serving cross-culturally with Uyghur Muslims was probably not in her wheelhouse. In other words, it was requiring her all the time to not use what she was best at and required her to be more outgoing than she is normally and to do things that are not comfortable for her long-term. And so I think uh, she felt like her season in China was finished and she needed to come home it's interesting you you mentioned the Uyghurs. So she was in a Muslim context. Yes. We had a missionary of our church for many years named Margie Heaston, who's from up in Lafayette, Indiana. And it was interesting. The reason she was able to stay in that context and do it well is that her whole life was being a midwife to Muslim women. Freedom among the women and children of the community in terms of witnessing and teaching the gospel. Okay. She was not a threat to the status quo. Right. And so you say she was there eight years, but you say that it was after she was there two years that you went. Yes. So Uh, would you open that up, please? Yeah. After about a year and a half, she wondered why we hadn't come to visit her in China. So I was busy doing pro-life work here and starting pregnancy centers in Miami and Boston. Now, okay, now let's back up. Okay. Take us to the beginning of your pro-life work and your friendship with John Piper. Because people need to understand this is not something that just started with China mm-hmm. and with your daughter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, my connection with John Piper goes back to when I was a s- senior in college and he became my Greek teacher his career started at Bethel College and Seminary. Both John Piper and Wayne Grudem were on the faculty at Bethel College my senior year. And my wife was in, was in Wayne Grudem's first theology class. And I was in John Piper's Greek class. And my wife was in the other Greek class that John taught. And we just became good friends as well as students with John. And over the years have maintained that friendship long before he became you know, the Charles Spurgeon of our time. Um, Conrad and Bayway might argue with that. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, um, I was uh, an ordained Baptist minister in the inner city of Boston. It was where I raised my family. And the issue of abortion came up one Sunday. And the closest thing to a great awakening in my lifetime uh, unfolded before us over several weeks when people started to stand up openly in our congregation of about 50 to 60, 70 people uh, and tell their testimony with great lamentation, many tears, many sobs. And, uh, and the women started, and then the men began to tell and confess how they had pressured women to abortion. Other men began to talk about how pornography uh, and their exposure to pornography uh, affected their behavior toward women and started to confess that. And as a result of all of that, we were able to come back and re-preach again the gospel of redemption and uh, of justification and the punishment that Christ paid on the cross. And all of a sudden, our people began to have a clearer, deeper, genuine experience of God's forgiveness that was very liberating and transforming for them. And part of the fruit of that was that they they said, we know how to rescue women because we were those women. We know what would have made a difference, and we know what would not have made a difference. And so my wife and a couple other women began to go out to some of the abortion clinics 
and to offer counseling. And then a number of us were involved with some of that and some of the sit-ins back in those days. And eventually they decided that we wanted to start a pregnancy counseling center in the inner city of Boston. So we opened up a pregnancy help counseling office. I was speaking in churches around the greater Boston area, raising the support and finding the volunteers and eventually the staff. And that eventually grew into six pregnancy help clinics uh, in the greater Boston area and a book that I wrote with focus on the family called Answering the Call that was really dedicated for helping Christian leaders like myself, pastors, elders, small group leaders, begin to think through the issue of abortion from a, starting with the Bible. What does the Bible say? And, uh, and out of the politics realm, just start with the Bible and Christian ethics. So all of this is my background, and that started around 1989, uh, 1990, in that period of time. And uh, I want to stop you just for a second. We'll pick up again. You say that it was the closest thing that you have had to a revival, uh, yeah. uh, what Lloyd Jones would call a special uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's correct. But you did not say what caused the repentance in your church. Well, we were addressing uh, what the Bible calls the shedding of innocent blood. And again, you say we, was this you and your wife? No, it was actually me and fellow elders of my church over a two or three week period. And how did you do that? Honestly, I can't really remember what what the texts were, but but the point is we we were talking about the shedding of innocent blood and... As a result of that, we started talking more directly about abortion being the biblically understood as the shedding of innocent blood. And the more clear we became in exposing what abortion was, the deeper the cut became. And my experience is that I came to faith in the Jesus movement at a time when, before I had really been able to make a lot of bad decisions in my life. So abortion was not a part of my background. Um, And I really had no idea. I mean, to me, abortion was more of an intellectual discussion in an ethics class. It wasn't really a living reality to Mm me. So when the issue of the shedding of innocent blood came up, and a, a member of my church stood up and started talking about how she had had an abortion, I was a little bit surprised and shocked and then a second and then a third and then a fourth woman stood up and then the men began to stand up and i began to realize this is the movement of god exposing what was even unclear to me even though i was preaching and teaching on the subject and their testimonies was a revelation to me that for years i had been preaching and much of what i had hoped would occur was not occurring because of this hidden, dark, painful secret that was a part of so many people in my church. Uh, it turned out to be about 30% of the people in my church. One woman said to me, I was the first person in my family to go to college, and I got pregnant, and I couldn't have a baby then because I was in college. Then I graduated and I started my career. I got pregnant again. Well, I couldn't have a baby then because I had just started my career. Then she said, a couple years later, I was making more money than ever made in my life. I bought my first house and I got pregnant a third time and I didn't want the money to stop. And then she began to cry. She said, I believed the lie of abortion at every rung of the economic ladder, low, middle, and upper. Then I began to really realize how devastating this had been in her life. And she said, you want to know why I never volunteered to teach the kids in a Sunday school class? She said, I figured if you knew that I had aborted three mm-hmm. children, you wouldn't mm-hmm. want me working with my mm-hmm. with children. Well, that did not come from us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were a bunch of any inner city beanbag people mm-hmm. just coming out of, <laughs> you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the mm-hmm. 70s and, and all that kind of stuff. That judgment was coming from a demonic point. And uh, I was able then to help her realize that the cross is really about the shedding of innocent blood as well. That if abortion is the shedding of innocent blood, so is the cross. It's blood for blood. And it's more powerful 
than any other blood. And it can wash away and purge away and cleanse the conscience so that you can serve the living God. Hebrews uh, 9.14 became a watchword for many people in my church. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse mm-hmm. our consciences from mm-hmm. things that led to death? Let me go back and mm-hmm. probe a statement you made. It was de- it was a demonic influence. What I'm, because you and I have talked before. Yeah. And we have bemoaned together the absence of pastors preaching on abortion, even though they all say they're pro-life. They of all, course. this, mm-hmm. that, and the other thing. Of course. What I was trying to pull out it was the very proclamation of the horror of bloodshed, of innocence, that called forth the confessions of sin. I, I have experienced that in my life. Yeah. I saw that on a small scale, and I've seen it around the world in other places <laughs> now on a larger scale, that this is often the the uh, the purging that needs—this is— this, this is the boil that needs to be lanced in many, many people's life, is the shedding of, of, of blood is the one thing that the conscience cannot deal with. We can only suppress it. We can only deny it. We can only pretend it's not there. But it, 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 it fundamentally disables us as Christians and keeps us weak. And it's not that the demons are lying to us about the nature of the horror of what we've done. It's that they lie to us and tell us that there is no hope for us. That's mm-hmm. correct. It stains the conscience and alienates us from God. Yeah. And it's a real alienation. And in my people, they, 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 these are good people. You know, These are salt of the earth, inner city people that, that in many ways have experienced a new birth but they couldn't find their footing. They couldn't find a place to stand. And it was also because, again, they have guilt on one side that they don't know where to go with. Hmm. They would say things like, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Now, that's kind of the moral weakness and confusion that was very Hmm. common in our church. And I would say to them with a smile on my face, you don't really mean that. You don't really mean to say that that God has one standard, but you have a higher standard. You know, that God can forgive you, but you can't forgive. That's not what you're saying. What you're really saying is that you don't understand how the cross actually works. You don't understand what we refer to as the doctrine of justification or atonement yet. Uh So, because when you really see it, then it becomes good news of great joy that you have been set free. You've experienced the miracle of being forgiven when you were condemned. But that also was what I was able to go back and preach to my people. So things like justification and atonement are are words that we deal with sort of in an academic setting. But in the context of abortion, they're life-changing because you get to explain the cross as full punishment paid for the full penalty that is due so that nothing else needs to be punished and the only way that you can respond to that is not by adding to it in any way, but just by receiving it with great joy. And all of a sudden, the gospel's promise of joy and peace and power begin to be unleashed in my people. And that's where they started to go out and say, we can rescue mothers and women, couples. And and it's here we are 30 years later, and I still feel like I'm in that wave of release. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you said earlier that it's difficult for women to wait for men who are... And you sort of... I don't remember the words you used, but who are weak? And you characterized... Immature. And I do think that that's in large part true, of men today, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be insulting, but I've always thought that, uh, and I don't like to quote Lewis, I'd rather quote Chesterton, but I've always thought Lewis in The Abolition of Man uh, gets at it perfectly when he says that we've turned men into geldings and then we've demanded that they reproduce. Correct. Mm-hmm. The, they're men without chests. Their chests are hollow. Right. And I don't say that again to to put down younger men, but my goodness, can't we have the spiritual maturity and faith to diagnose our condition, not just as individuals, but as a generation, 
and to recognize what we need. And it's not enough, actually, to have political commitments that cause you to be a belligerator. And it's actually not also helpful for you to grow a big beard. You know, John, you don't have a beard. <laughs> and and yet you've spent your life living at the crossroads of the most intense bondage in the world today, which is the bondage of billions of murders. And that place is a place, if you're going to stand with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it requires incredible faith. Incredible faith, because you don't get love for doing what you do. No, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, but in my view, uh, it's just been the calling and the outworking of the gospel. And today, it just seems to me that it's very difficult to preach the gospel correctly and appropriately in the culture of our times without exposing the nature of abortion as the shedding of innocent blood and bringing the good news of the gospel particularly and specifically to that particular evil. Uh, because I believe, you know, with somewhere between 40 and 58 million abortions a year in the world, uh, depending on what sources you want to use, uh, this is the sin that has stained the whole world. And it's the one sin I think that uh, the Christian leaders are still silent about. And until it is perforated, uh, it holds people back from the gospel. Let me give you an example. I met a man once who said, God can never forgive me. And he mm -hmm. said it like that, just the mm -hmm. defiant red eyes. God can never forgive me. And I had enough wisdom just to hold my tongue. I said, there's a story coming here if you just be quiet. And he knew I was a Baptist minister. I think he was expecting me to say, oh, you know, God loves you. And I think he expected <laughs> that argument to come back. And I just held my peace. And then he paused and he said, I killed my wife. And then it was my turn. And I said, I agree with you. God could never forgive you. Now, he was a little bit taken aback because he didn't expect that as an answer. Okay? And then I said, it would take a miracle for God to forgive you. So what was going on there? In his mind, what he did deserved punishment. And if God is just... God could never forgive him. So therefore, he's got it. He's got it figured out. And he knew that I could not go anywhere with that. So I said, okay, I'm going to agree with his conscience, number one, that what he did was damnable and a just God would damn him. And I said, it would take a miracle then for God to forgive him, meaning that on the cross, there is a miracle provided and that the justice of God that now condemns him if he's willing to accept it, the justice of God will now defend him because it's been fully paid in Jesus Christ on the cross. And I began to explain it to them, to him. But my, my takeaway from that story is that man could sit in church for a hundred years every Sunday morning and evening and never respond to the gospel until someone could explain how the gospel could specifically address his one issue which is he killed his wife. And I think it's the same way with abortion and many other situations. Until we speak to how abortion is the shedding of innocent blood and the cross is about the shedding of innocent blood, people are stuck. They just listen to everything else, but they have that one thing that's holding on to them and controlling them until someone will begin to say, mm -hmm. even this has to yield to the sovereign power and the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Our lives have been spent in parallel but different spheres. And where we meet in our greatest unity, you and I when we talk, is actually not abortion, where we meet is in, and I don't know how to put it, but the preaching, our frustration 
with the unwillingness, inability, you don't know how to put it, of pastors to preach the law of God as a schoolmaster to the to the grace of Jesus Christ. Go. And it's like you say, well, the bloodshed, well, yeah, that really almost dwarfs everything else. And, you know, you read the Old Testament prophets. I've just gotten done with uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. I'm now on Ezekiel. And it's just this relentless condemnation of the people of God for the bloodshed of the innocents, and then specifically for them giving their children to Moloch. That's them. correct. Mm. Yeah. And you read those things. And I remember when I was very young, just starting to be a pastor in 83, 84, I remember reading those sections of the prophets and, and just the relentless theme of bloodshed of the people of God and that God hates that bloodshed. And I remember thinking, well, you know, that's a sin that we don't have today. I remember thinking that. Of course. And yeah. then immediately I thought to myself, now, wait a second. I have not found any other sin in Scripture that we don't have today. I must be thinking about this wrong. Well, it was about that time that Joan Andrews and Joe mm -hmm. Scheidler and yep. Mother Teresa and all these people. And to some degree, Harold O.J. Brown, you know, Joe Brown, yes. the theologian from Trinity. And there were these, and, and Chick Coop and Schaefer had gone around the country speaking. And I began to think about abortion. Well, the minute you start that, it's, it's kind of over for you. Because it is a watershed moment where you realize, and I remember right after that, that as a young pastor, I preached through the Ten Commandments. And nobody had told me to fasten my safety belt and put on my helmet. Mm. I just thought, well, you know, the Ten Commandments are part yeah. of, you know, the, the, the larger and shorter. I, I, well, yeah, 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 let's do this. <laughs> All of a sudden, I had my fingernails clawing onto the anything around me to hold me, you know, because of the overwhelming sense of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of each of us that came over us as, as, as we as I preached the Ten Commandments, mm. you know, and a similar worship service at my town church where mm. there was a Sunday. I don't remember which sermon it was, but I mean, you could just feel the movement of God in that place. And the movement was conviction of sin. Yes. And so many pastors will do anything they can to keep their people from feeling the weight of sin. So we're living out in many ways those who've been forgiven little. Love, Love little, little. Yeah, 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 yeah. because we won't, we won't, uh, we won't cut into those painful areas that bring the conviction. We cut ourselves off from the great joy of being forgiven as an experience of being transformed and li a living, a miracle. Really, look what God has done for me. Let me tell you about my life. You know, that's the testimony that changes the world. And we've just decided that we don't want to go there because of the cultural pushback. Now, you say because. I have no question you're right in what you just said because of the cultural pushback. But as a pastor, it's a little bit different. I used to say to my dad, you know, dad, for you, it's much easier than it is for me because you get done preaching a mini sermon and you publish it in Eternity Magazine. It goes out in the mail. And the worst that can possibly happen to you is that you get a letter to the editor. And that letter doesn't have a face behind it that is furious at you. I said, whereas when I get done preaching, I go to the back door and greet every single person in the church. And immediately I know how it played. I say that as, as a preface to saying to you that, yes, because of the cultural pushback, number one. Number two, that cultural pushback is that it's most intense with pastors inside the church, in the sanctuary, in the pews. Absolutely. But Absolutely. then I want to bring up a third thing. In the U.S. Yes, yes, I would yes. say in the U.S. This is not the situation but that's because, in many other parts of the world. Yeah, but that's – yeah. I mean, we could spend 15 minutes yeah. talking about why that's the case. Yeah. But, but I want to add something else, which is my own conscience. Sadly, I'm afraid – that the reason that grace is not preached but is only a pattern, a cheap, a 
epithet in the conservative reform world, Baptist or Presbyterian, is that pastors themselves have not confessed their true sins to God and experienced the forgiveness. I'm not saying they're unconverted. You earlier right. talked about your congregation, said they were right. good people, right. and yet they suffered under the guilt. So I don't want to get into a discussion of whether these right. people are regenerate or not. That's not the issue. But with pornography, with sexual sin, with abuse— pastors simply won't deal with it. They will overlook it as much as they can. And I've come to the conclusion, because of all the calls where pastors are trying to cover things up and having to deal with this, I've come to the conclusion that it's uh, uh, the absence of pastors' own personal knowledge of the depth of their sin and of the depth of God's mercy. It's like they don't have faith for their people confessing their sin and having it exposed because they're fearful. You're dealing with people who are halfway believing the gospel. Yeah. They're halfway believing. But when it comes to confessing those things that really humiliate the, the flesh, so to speak, we're still afraid and holding back. Uh, Can I ask you a question? When those people began to confess their sin in your church in Boston— Emotionally and relationally, you and your wife, what was your response? How did you feel? Well, let me finish what happened there. Uh, after people began to stand and tell their story, the women led the way. Then the men started to stand up and with many tears also confessed that they were more responsible for the death of these children because they were, they were recognizing that they were pressuring their wives and their mm -hmm. girlfriends and so on and so forth. And then a woman stood up, and she said the most devastating thing that I've ever heard in my, in my ministry to me. She said, I had an abortion one year ago. Now, in my mind, I'm immediately calculating, wait a minute, wait a minute. All the other stories are you know, from years ago and on somebody else's watch and before they were saved and so on and so forth. Now, all of a sudden, this lady's speaking about something that was happening a year ago when I was her pastor. So my internal temperature started to go up. And here's what she said, Tim. She said, I prayed that what if, what, if what I'm doing is wrong, that God would send someone to stop me. Now, that was stated over 30 years ago, and it still stings because at that moment, I recognized my own guilt along with my congregation. In other words, it's not a question about those who have done it and those who haven't. It's a question between those who've done it directly and those who've said nothing about it directly over the years. So all of us got to enter into the pro-life movement through the same gate of repentance. And the whole point of the shedding of innocent blood in the Bible is not whether you shed innocent blood, it's whether you shed it or whether you close your eyes to it and accept it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, make peace with it. Mm -hmm. And they're both sharing the guilt. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was a day of great um, uh, humbling that I had to say to her, God did send someone to stop you. He sent me, but I had failed to even ever address the issue. In, in in my time there as a pastor mm -hmm. at that point. And so I think for us, the, the genuine uh, awakening realization was that all of us need to go before the Lord and get on our knees and confess mm -hmm. what side of this guilt we're on, mm -hmm. the direct or the passive. And as a result of that, there was a... There was a significant unity of repentance. There was a movement in our small congregation where all were repenting. And I think that basic fundamental spirit of confession and humility has stayed with me all my life. It never really left me. Uh, and so when I stand up and speak in Romania, I was just there last week. I started with my story. Mm -hmm. so that they recognize I'm not coming mm -hmm. at this as some sort of a, a moral preacher here. I'm mm -hmm. talking about what it means to lead well on this particular issue and that 
that my silence had left my people vulnerable and their guilt was my guilt. And together, God has shown us that the shedding of innocent blood is not one issue among many. It's a, pre, it's a preeminent moral crisis, the shedding of innocent blood, and that together we must lead our people to confess it and to reject it and begin to rescue the innocent as a movement. I was reading some statistics about 15 years, 20 years ago, and I'm not sure why I got into it, but um, I began to I began to dig deeper, and I came up with estimates that were scholarly that we had reached a point in North America where the incidence of abortion was 43 percent of the women of childbearing age in any population group. That was the case in 1990 or so. So maybe it was back in 1990. It's down to about 32% now, but yes. Well, that assumes we're not talking about hormonal birth control. And correct. that's the thing that you that's and correct. I that's correct. blanch at even mentioning because yeah. that explodes everything. But then I began to look at the, at the demographics of sins, you know, inside and outside the church. And looking for a differential. What difference does it make to be a Christian in an evangelical, Bible-believing, fundamentalist, whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. a church? Mm -hmm. And what I realized at that time was, by any indication, whether it's a Gallup poll, whatever it is, your, your statistics of fornication, of adultery, of divorce, of abortion, of all these various sins are not much different inside and outside the church. And then I realized that if I could look at my congregation, I had a congregation, say, of 100, Mm -hmm. and of that 100, let's say 50 of them were women, that of that 50, somewhere around 20 to 22 of them had had, I won't say experienced, had had, had chosen to have an abortion, yes, often with the oppression of a man in their lives, Yes. Or their mother, you got you pick it outside an abortion. Yeah, or you, father, you mm-hmm. want, yeah, but the father is not often the one that has her hand holding the elbow of the woman who is her daughter mm-hmm. taking her into Planned Parenthood. I Correct. Mean, Correct. I've seen this stuff, you know. So anyhow, yeah, but the fathers have told the wives to do that. Or the wives yeah. have told, but but yeah. anyhow, regardless, my point is, even if you only want to talk about surgical abortion by the baddies at Planned Parenthood, or now over 50% of them are chemical, you know, in the end of the first or the beginning right. of the second trimester. Even if you only want to talk about the obvious abortions that are farther on in pregnancy, okay, you're talking about a huge number of women and men in the church who have purchased the murder of their child. A yes. huge I'd number. say around at least 33%, about a third at least. So even if you take it at 33%, you're talking about a third. Yes. And Mary Lee and, and I, after many years of counseling and incest, sexual abuse, child abuse, we put the incidence of child sexual molestation and abuse or incested around 40 to 50%. percent mm of young women who come into our church. And remember, we're in a church in a university community where we've had a constant stream of young women going through. Mm. And a number of those young women were raised in the most conservative Christian homes. Now, I mean, Mary Lee and I yesterday spent hours with a couple. I don't want to go into it, but at the end of that day, they had come to visit us. They had been out in the Midwest visiting their children, and we had been working with them by the phone. And after meeting with them my wife had invited all the grandchildren over to her house to have a rake the leaves ride the zip line into the pile of leaves you know have a fire have uh s'mores and hot dogs and you know this is a wonderful time with our grandchildren and our kids and everything and mary lee who was always up for anything sat down and said to me my stomach is sick i don't know if i can do this and they were going to show up within 
half an hour. And I thought she was getting sick. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I just can't stand it, what I heard. Mm. I just can't stand it. Well, what was it? Everything you and I have been talking about is what it was to deal with sin. And it was the suffering of children Mm. and of parents and of people in the church. I remember being at a church out um, out west. I spoke at a conference at the church. And of course, I always bring up abortion because to me, it is the central um, indictment of evangelicalism. We have been utterly AWOL on the issue of abortion. Wow, everybody thinks we're pro-life. It's just Nobody's pro-life. The reason all these electoral initiatives fail is because evangelicals aren't pro-life, actually. <laughs> you, do you want to say anything about that in the wake of Ohio? I mean, you're smiling. What do you have to say to that? Anyhow, I want to just finish about that day. I really intensely spoke about abortion mm. and that it was maybe the most profound violation of the fatherhood of God in man. That we as men, and I remember a father of, I think, 12 coming up to me afterwards crying mm. and confessing that early in their marriage, he and his wife had murdered one of their children through abortion. And I, I'm telling you, you go into the most respectable, nationally known leaders, churches, you know, and you open up abortion, which... The, they say they're pro-life, but of course, there's never the preaching of God's law to their own congregation. It's always the problem is outside. Yes. People are pro-life uh, in the way that you throw a piece of meat to an angry dog to sort of keep it <laughs> at bay. That's how I look at most people who say they're pro-life. They're saying it as a box to check so they can shibboleth. move on. It's a shibboleth. Yeah. So... Oh, that's the reality in the States and in most of Western Europe. That's the case. But wait, wait, wait. Let's go back. You go over for vacation. Yeah. You're visiting Megan. Now open that up to us because I think it's time to hear about the rest of the world. Minds is brought to you by New Geneva Academy. NGA trains men for the work of ministry. For more information, go to newgenevaacademy.com.